This podcast is proudly presented by Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. It's 2023 and modern climbers are more accomplished than ever. And we don't just mean on the wall. Patagonia has always seen the value in being bold, whether it means pushing high points or having the audacity to demand more for our planet. So what's it mean to be a strong climber? Full commitment to the sport and to our communities. It means not just working towards futuristic first ascents, but also a better future. And we aren't going to get there alone. For Patagonia's 50th year, we're looking forward, not back. And together, we can prioritize purpose over profit to protect this planet. Get involved, read stories to get you out there, and join a community that values what we do off the wall as much as we do on. Find out more at patagonia.com slash climbing. We get support from Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort, but most importantly, your snacks. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in fit, comfort, and working in the long term to offset CO2 emissions by teaming up with Climate Partner to invest in social and climate offset projects worldwide for select product, including their guide and ver trail climbing packs. Deuter packs are PFC-free, meaning no forever chemicals, and they honor their promised life time warranty since their packs were meant to be on your back and not in landfills. So you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting sendy, whether at the crag or in the alpine. Today we're going to talk about Ali. Ali means come on in a way or to encourage. Okay, we are done with the simple and normal uses of Ali. Now let's cut to the chase. LA Outdoor Personal Care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Their rich and repairing ingredients for their skincare collection are inspired by desert landscapes, and their simple and recyclable packaging makes them eco-sustainable. LA commits to protecting the open spaces that we love by partnering with the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. That's LA Outdoor, A-L-L-E-Z. LA Outdoor, made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Who is Otsun? More than prolific crack climbing gloves, Otsun has been making innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance since 1998. Their climbing shoe designs are all original, developed and manufactured in Czech Republic, and 100% gender neutral. Beyond their sticky rubber, Otsun is renowned for their hardware, harnesses, and the biggest, lightest crash pad on the market. Find your new favorite climbing shoes and accessories at Backcountry, Moose Jaw, Camp Saver and Amazon. I'm really hoping like that I don't end up crying, but sometimes I like it's weird because because uh, to me she's still like it feels like she's still here, like she's still gonna like text me or call me or you know. But there's like moments where like you know, like meeting her parents you know, after the accident or like whenever I ever have to refer to her in the past tense, it just like hits you and you're like, oh fuck, that happened. On October 29th, 2019, Michelle Shue and her climbing partner, Jenny Shedden, set off to climb Red Slate Mountain in the Sierra Nevada when they were struck by rockfall and killed. This story is told through the lens of her dear friend, Artem. While all genres of climbing can be dangerous. Alpine climbing is likely the most. 
These stories of loss pay tribute to loved ones. But beyond that, the life of an alpine climber is complex. They say, what's done in love is done well. But the passion for this sport creates a catch-22. The cold paradox of alpine climbing leaves loved ones behind, pondering the time-worn question, why do we climb? Why choose to continue a sport when the risks encountered could mean death? Everyone will grieve in this lifetime and everyone will experience loss. It's a painful but normal part of human existence. And the process of grief, though it moves, will move in cycles. My, my relationship with her spanned three years, but it was a kind of person that you expect to know for the rest of your life. Um, you know, obviously that, that didn't happen and that, that, that's probably the hardest part about all of this is um, how prematurely everything was cut short. Okay, I'm on You are listening to the Love of Climbing podcast. It's a funny sounds, I'm uncomfortable by it. I was like, wow, this is the opposite of my podcast, but you know, here we go. <laughs> I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing. Is it to the, or to, do you say to For the Love of Climbing podcast? I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. Yeah, yeah, I see it. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This is not a climbing podcast. Well, sort of. It's a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability. Here's the show. <laughs> Easy cheesy. Hi, my name is Artem Vasilyev. I am a, an adventure climber, alpinist based out of Oregon. I would describe myself as somebody that is like technically working, but like, here's how I usually structure things. I, whenever I can get away from work, like if I'm in between jobs or something of that nature, I'll make the most of that time. But whenever I'm working, I'm constantly traveling and working and climbing whenever I'm not supposed to be somewhere basically or be online at this point with remote work in a world where remote work has steadily been on the rise since 2000 according to upwork an estimated 32.6 million americans will be working remotely by 2025 that includes climbers of all walks of life parking their laptops at climbing gyms or a local coffee shop and rethinking what can constitute as a makeshift office. It's the perfect foundation for anyone willing to take the deep dive into a lifestyle sport that requires a lot of time. Time to train or climb or both and squeeze in a 40 hour work week. And for many, this is how they choose to live day to day. And maybe if this is you, you might reject the term dirtbag because on the one hand, you definitely haven't showered all week, but on the other, you do carry a full-time job. And this is largely how Artem has lived most of his adult life as a climber since beating Michelle in New York in 2017. 
so I, I met her whenever like she was looking for a partner to climb at the cliffs in Long Island City, and so as I, I was there for this internship at this like firm that dealt with Wall Street clients. She was there to work for a sovereign wealth fund for Singapore, both for like these like super like desired jobs from the schools that we were coming from and just those random like chance like social media encounters. Um, she was really smart. She uh, was going to Georgetown, uh, very high achieving, uh, but at the same time she lacked that, I don't know how to put it into words, but there's a certain like, I don't want to say like squareness, but like the certain like normalness that sometimes kind of painful whenever you're dealing with like working in, in these like firms in New York City or whatnot. She was very much so not like that. She was just like super curious, very ambitious and in, like stoked and excited and all these things. And you know, we were in a similar boat and that kept us connected, but she was really depressed about her job and she just didn't like it in New York City. She was from California. So uh, she kind of had like that California accent the whole like, dude, like, you know, like, I don't know how to imitate it perfectly, but it wasn't her place and she just wanted to go back home to the West Coast the whole time we were there. And the work hours were brutal. It was like 80 hour weeks and oftentimes there was weekend work and we commiserated on that and kind of made a bond there. But really I think what brought us together was just our excitement for adventure and this mutual understanding that you can do anything you want in terms of climbing, you can create whatever you want. You can achieve any real dream you have. You just need to prepare for it and be ambitious and be willing to take on uh, risky things. And she was very excited and pretty cavalier about that. And so was I, and so we saw eye to eye. And to me, it feels that's unique because oftentimes people aren't like that. And you know, not to say that that's a bad thing because I think it's a good thing. It's, I think people should really focus on what's important to them, but not many people are interested in like the idea of planning a trip to Siberia to go climbing or like to some place that like you've you know only ever read about and probably not prepared for and you know other people get a guide for and like all these things that are stacked against you and then still having like the courage to in the in the stoke and maybe the naivety to like try to do it anyway and so she was like that uh even more so than than I am So I started climbing when I was 18 years old. Uh, I started like having the idea of climbing whenever I was five years old. Um, and that came because this really like kind of corny like 90s movie called K2. It was released in 97. I saw it in 99. I just recently moved to America and my parents were just like showing me all these American films. That one was uh, R-rated. They didn't know what that meant. And I learned my first curse words there. And I learned like, I saw there these like really cool scenes of like Yosemite and like in the movie itself was about K2. And I got that idea in my head and I'm like, I'm going to be a climber. So I told pretty much everybody I was going to be a professional rock climber. And they told me that's not a job. And I believed them. So what I did is just the normal like climbing on trees. I would go back to um, Russia and Lithuania. Um, there's all these like abandoned Soviet projects and blocks that just never got finished once the fall of the Soviet Union happened. And and they make for really cool, like exposed, like little adventure playgrounds that are super not safe at all, but it was kind of the norm there. And so started at 18 and got straight into trad climbing and um, I've always been kind of seeking out things that feel um, out there, I suppose, not intentionally, but it's always just been what like I've been drawn to. Um, this recent trip to Alaska had a bunch of really cool 
moments on these really large roots. Even the moderate sized roots there translate to the biggest roots that you can find in the lower 48. So there were some really fantastic moments there. You know, also just like various alpine rock summits and volcano summits. Really, I think the coolest moments always are when you kind of know that you're going to send and then you, you're there and it's like this weird like culmination of so many hours and days and weeks and months or maybe even years of planning, hoping, dreaming, thinking like it's not gonna work or like I can't do this or like this is way too much and then you're there and you know that moment only lasts like a little bit but they, they all kind of stick out in my head even though it's hard to pick out specific ones as being the best because all of them felt at the time felt like the coolest thing I've ever done. You know, there's a few different styles of climbing that people go for in the Alaska range. Ski mountaineering is one of them. Uh, traditional mountaineering with big loads and you know many camps uh, with very little technical climbing, where like maybe the altitude and the, you know the conditions are the challenge. And then there's the technical climbing that is more reminiscent of like trad climbing, where you're climbing something that's mostly vertical, uh, like torquing your tools into like cracks, climbing ice, you know, placing protection and doing everything you can not to whip. And that last style is what I've been attracted to naturally through the progression of starting as a trad climber. And also like reading up on the history of various, um, like the styles of alpine climbing, it seems like whenever rock climbers transition from their world to the ice climbing and alpine world, they tend to choose or favor technicality over like, let's say the altitude or the elevation of like a summit. After New York, both Michelle and Artem went on to new chapters. Artem eventually landed in the Pacific Northwest, and Michelle went back to California. But it was the start of what they both hoped was a lifelong partnership. Michelle had graduated with a major in operations information management and had begun her career as an acquisitions analyst. But she continued to carve out time for trips, her appetite whetted by spontaneity, a strong curiosity, and an even stronger growing tenacity. She went on to do a ton of climbing, um, a lot of really impressive climbing. When she died, she was 22. Uh, and in that time, between I think the ages of 18 and 22, she had gone to Patagonia and climbed in those mountains. She had gone to the Himalayas. She had gone, climbed all over California, you know, attempted the Grand Traverse, you know, traveled to Australia, to Spain, Morocco. Uh, she would basically get these ideas in her head and she would do them. We always stayed in touch and we would go climbing here and there. But, you know, she got a full-time job in California and she went on this like West Coast tour that ended in the, uh, the Bugaboos. I had recently moved to the West Coast. This was in 2019. And, um, you know, we reconnected there. She was always like, dude, you need to go ice climbing. And I was like, okay, like you need to teach me. And she came to me with this idea to go to the Chukotka in Siberia. And she's like, hey, like, you're going to be my guy because you speak Russian. And, you know, you need that for logistics, especially in Siberia where nobody speaks English. And I was really excited about the idea. I was like, you sure? Like, you're okay with the mosquitoes? And, like, it's going to be super remote and, like, really, like, hard to be there. Um, and she was like, yeah, yeah, I'll make a spreadsheet and we'll, like, 
draft up notes and you know we got all these plans to do a bunch of Yosemite walls together uh, in order to prepare for the idea of going and doing that but on mostly untraveled ground in Siberia and we were planning for um, an El Cap climb in November when she had her uh, her accident in, in October um, and she was traveling back to LA to start her job and she stopped by in Portland where you know she visited me she stayed in my apartment for a few days and uh, we had planned to climb up a mostly unclimbed big wall in Washington called Tower Rock that just is pretty much off of everybody's radar and this uh, wall is unique in that it's made entirely out of this really dense andesite that fractures in such a way that it's invisible. And what that leads to is these big blocks will separate from the wall and the edges of the rock are razor sharp because the cracks are invisible. And so whenever it separates, and it's just like dangerous stuff. And she was stoked for it previously, but when she showed up, she wasn't at all. And I asked her why and, you know, there was this weird synchronicity, I suppose, with our whole conversation and how things turned out that I really didn't think about, um, considering this is the last time I saw her. But we we talked about a moment she had in the Bugaboos where she was, um, whenever you climb Alpine Rock, oftentimes you'll free solo like 5'4", 5'5", 5'6". And she was in one of those steps and she was climbing and she said that, you know, she's smearing up a slab and like climbing a crack uh, that was like angling and as she was moving in between jams, uh, one of her feet just skid out from under her and she caught herself on like her lower jam. But it was really scary because she wasn't aware that she could have fallen. And, and I guess if you've done any amount of soloing, you'll know that these things happen and people react to it differently. But in her case, she was really, you know, shook by it. And she asked for the, her partner to drop a rope. And, you know, when she got to the anchor, she cried. And they ended up leaving the bugaboos sometime after that. And, you know, her stoke for dangerous things had really diminished uh, from that incident. Unknown to Artem, sitting in his apartment, recounting that could have been fatal slip would be the last time he would see Michelle. While she told him what had happened, how scared she was, and how close it all felt to coming to an end, Artem kept thinking about Tower Rock. And how like dangerous it is. And I was like, okay, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't do that. Like, let's just chill and like enjoy the city and do normal people stuff. And she was really excited about that. She loved food. We always go to like some like nice restaurant and get like, you know, a six course meal. And so we did that. And we had this conversation before she left where, you know, she talked about how much she didn't want to die and how much she didn't want her family to grieve and miss her if she did. And how that moment really put that in front of her face and, you know, how much she loves her brother and how she wasn't sure if he knew that and how they were like distant at the time and how like her parents don't really understand what she's doing out there because like a picture doesn't really convey what's going on out in those mountains and how like, you know, we laugh about how like if our moms just could see us where we are, they would freak out. Uh, and I remember like talking to her about like my job and how like I just felt like trapped and just unhappy because of like whatever things that just felt important but honestly aren't that important like remember i cried on her shoulder and like all these like this really like abnormally like um 
close conversation, and that's the last time I saw her. She stopped by my office to drop off the key to my apartment, and you know, I gave her a hug before she left, and it was it was a really long hug. And and, and off she went, and um, she would always leave gifts each time she'd see a friend, and she would always leave like a postcard, like saying something nice, and and so she left that, and that's the last I, I saw of Michelle, and. That I think was in early October, and that was a, a weirdly special time because you know the world was still normal. Um, the pandemic hadn't happened. Um, all these people that I knew or knew of or admired or loved, like were still alive. Um, Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine and drafted me into the army. Like all these weird like big things hadn't happened yet. And so I still felt, not that I'm that much older now, I'm only 28, but I felt like a young kid then. And since then I really haven't. I think it's just a total loss of innocence. Like I always functioned and still function like on hope and hoping that everything's gonna be great. And then whenever things turn out to be the exact opposite of that, uh, and, and then it becomes this battle of maintaining uh, optimism and fighting off cynicism because you can't live life mired in, in negative feelings even if it does feel like a specter or a cloud that kind of hangs over you sometimes. After Portland, Michelle and Artem began planning heavily for Yosemite. Texting almost every single day, talking about gear, talking about beta strategies, this blog post we read, this comment we read, our thoughts on like this pitch of, you know, whatever, like, can we simulclimb this? Can we not? You know, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? And that all went silent. Um, and, you know, it, I didn't see it being entirely out of the ordinary because, you know, we go into the mountains and be out of service for a few days. And so I just didn't think anything of it, uh, even though it was a little weird. But she was supposed to go um, to Jaytree, I think, to go climb with her friend, uh, but made this spur-of-the-moment decision to go climbing with another woman. Um, I didn't know her, but she was a climber in her 30s from the Bishop area, or Mammoth. And uh, they had made plans to climb the north Kular of Red Slate Mountain in the Sierras. And it was October. Uh, 25th and 26th that she went was up there um, and for people that are, just aren't aware of conditions in mountains early season tends to not be very snow covered uh, but in the high sierras it's going to be cold and so these um, big couloirs of ice will form and you'll get like 3,000 feet of just like calf burning like ice with like a handful of like steeper cruxes and so she, they went out to do that and so I had only found out about that whenever I got a text from a friend that said, hey, did you hear about Michelle? And, you know, I saw that and I was like, oh, that's ominous. Okay, well, um, I'm going to be optimistic here. And the, my method of optimism might be kind of weird. Um, I like to rule out the worst case scenario first. And so I, I Googled her name and this article came up about two women that died um, on Red Slate Mountain. And I was like, okay, like, that's a coincidence. Like, but you know, it can't be her. That's what I was telling myself. And I, so I clicked on the article and, you know, I scrolled through, not really reading, just looking for a name. And 
Uh, when I found it, I screamed. Um, I didn't expect to, uh, but it just came out of me. Um, it just didn't feel real. There it was. And um, just like that, every like reality was different and, and irrevocably so. It turned out what happened was the aspect of the mountain is north facing, but there's this big um, buttress of rock near the summit that catches sun in the morning. And they uh, were probably about 30 minutes to an hour from topping out and getting out of the danger of the QR and the sun shining on that rock had melted something and caused a collapse that was big. And it, it filled that QR with a barrage of rocks and it killed both her and her climbing partner at a boy stance. Um, and, uh, but I, I didn't know that. I just knew that she was gone. And, um, and so I called off work and I grabbed some crampons and an ice tool. And I wanted to go to a place that me and her had shared before, like literally just a month before. I just knew that's where I would feel okay. And so I remember going out there and uh, ascending to the top of this ridge and sitting down. Uh, I'm not so background. I'm not a relig religious person. I have a very like Soviet upbringing, and my parents were scientists, so I've never had religion in my life. And I tend to be like overly skeptical to a point to where it might be annoying. But that being said, you know there was these ravens that kind of circle around Mount Hood that followed me up there and spent time with me there and I felt her presence with them in this really real way. I sat down, I meditated, I listened to the sounds of the mountain, I listened to the wind just kind of howling down the valleys. I felt the sun on me. I felt her, she was there with me, it felt like. Uh, and so I, I did that and then I descended and then I, you know, the sun was going down and it, you know, when you descend from a climb, you think about the entire day and how it went. And then um, I remembered that she was dead. I remembered that moment that I found out and it hit me again. And you know, it's like a knife that just goes into your brain. It's so painful. And I, I, I screamed again. I threw my ice, ice tool as far as I could. I, I just like crumpled to the ground and I just couldn't. I just felt like I was trapped in a reality that I didn't want. And I felt helpless. And then I felt a little stupid because I threw my ice tool and I felt like I looked dumb and I was happy nobody was around and went, you know, went to go find my ice tool and went out of there. And um, I remember that day was really strange because I knew at that time that I had two options. I could either walk away from the sport forever, which I told myself that Michelle would never want that for me to do that on her behalf, which you know, I don't know if that's true, because if she knew that she was going to die on that climb, maybe she'd tell me to go sport climbing or something. But that's how I felt, and I felt like I couldn't really walk away. And, and the other option was to go in deep and see what drew her to those kind of routes and that kind of experience, because she clearly loved it so much. And she risked a lot for it, and she paid a price that was too big for it. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back. Mm -hmm. 
Patagonia makes high-performance gear for climbing. From cragging essentials like the Kaliza and Menga rock pants to the redesigned Nano Air Light hybrid hoodie that keeps you comfortable when you're working hard in cold conditions. All of Patagonia's technical climbing products are designed and tested in partnership with their ambassador team. They're made to move, built to endure, and designed to have the lightest footprint possible. And like everything Patagonia makes, they're backed by a lifetime ironclad guarantee. Visit patagonia.com slash climbing to see the latest. We get support from BetterHelp to connect you to licensed therapists. They'll match you with the perfect therapist for a fraction of the cost of traditional therapy. You know who goes to therapy? Prince Harry, Emma Stone, Jenny Slate, Kesha, therapy is beautiful. Everyone should go to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com slash climbing to sign up and receive 10% off your first month. It helps support the show and it helps support you. I, I never reacted like that to the death of a person uh, before, but with Michelle, it was different because we were just so close and um, it was a person that I loved and it was a person I saw myself in. As far as speaking to grieving, um, to me, the, the hardest part about that is knowing that somebody is irrevocably gone and it's a hole that will never be filled and it will always be there. And... It also made me look at stories I had read differently because, you know, you'd read about adventures and there'd be like the side note that, you know, so-and-so didn't make it or so-and-so died. And, you know, it really didn't mean anything. Uh, I mean, obviously it does, but like, you know, this is just a person that you don't know anything about. Or like you read accident reports and people default to like this like state of like, you know, what do they do wrong? And like, you know, that never would be me. Or like we figure out ways to distance ourselves from it. But once it hits you like that, it made me look at the whole sport differently, at the whole culture differently at you know people other people that had experienced loss in their life and then it, it made me wonder how other people were able to just walk around and live their life day to day when the pain can be that deep and you know and obviously there's people that suffer even more and so I, I don't know what I learned about grief other than it's there and um, it's a big motivator to live life because it's shorter than we often want it to be and especially what's weird about adventure sports is it's so filled with grief, but yet we keep coming back to it. And I think what drives that is knowing that, you know, we might not have next week or we might not have next year. So may as well go on that climb or go do that thing or go make friends that you love and have this incredible bite of this big and beautiful thing that is life. And but then it's a bit of a paradox because it can also be what kills you and what makes all of that not possible and brings pain to other people. So, yeah, I, I do know that it, it gets better, but I also know that, that grief changes people. The five stages of grief can't begin to explain all the ways it impacts the brain, body, and sense of self. Loss is so personal and intimate that it doesn't always lend itself to these generalized stages because it's in fact as unique as we are. This normal evolutionary process of adaptation to protect us in the face of trauma isn't an actual state, but a process. And this process is tied into all kinds of different brain functions that will engage in the fight or flight mechanism. 
When a circuit fires repeatedly, it's reinforced and becomes the default setting. This is how grief can rewire the brain and disrupt the diverse cognitive realms of memory, decision-making, visuospatial function, and the speed at which we process information. Artem's paradox is a time-old tale told by many alpinists over generations. On his most recent Alaska trip, which he says was the most amazing trip he'd ever been on, was also peppered with more tragedy. The goal was to climb the Cassine Ridge, which we didn't do. I got altitude sickness on Denali, and you know, several deaths have ha happened on the mountain and you know on the Kahiltna. And so we ended up not climbing the Cassine Ridge, but we climbed a bunch of technical routes down low. We didn't witness somebody die, but it was right next to us, like right as we were skiing away from a climb that we did. And it was hopeless. Like whenever they went into the crevasse, they were gone. Um, they fell in with a bunch of debris and. Looking at them was really hard and talking to them was really hard because I felt like I was going to sob, but I, I could just see in their faces and, and the way they carried themselves, I could see myself after I found out what was going on with Michelle. And so, I don't know, it's like weird. There's this horrible undercurrent to some of the best years of my life and, uh, and it definitely wears, wears on you. But at the same time, that itch to go back out there is always going to be there, I think. So the whole like expedition idea has been around in my head since I was a kid. Like people know the world is big, but you don't know how big it is until you see it. And seeing it just made me want to see more because I knew that there's no way I'd see everything or experience everything, but I want to do as much as I could. And so as you build the foundation for bigger things, then that then you naturally progress there. And so that's progressed into um, all sorts of various like big wall climbs, um, climbing hard technical routes on the Cascade volcanoes. Um, you know, you have like moments where you, you have close calls or like something didn't go right. You know, you epic a little bit. And sometimes people fall out of the sport because of those moments. Um, other times you need to take a break. Uh, for me, I've just tried to learn and I feel grateful that I'm not, or at least so far, haven't been the person that didn't get to learn from their mistake and respecting how close you are to being that person, no matter how careful or how thoughtful or how well-intentioned or solid or talented or whatever you are, um, that, that still can be there. And so I guess is my idea of expedition is essentially taking something that seems kind of out there and then working towards breaking it down into these bite-sized pieces that will lead you to um, this arbitrary goal you might have. And then also just having like the sense of like, let's do it to uh, kind of shirk whatever it is else that you have in your, going on in your life and going out there and, and trying it and taking a risk knowing that it could be awful or it could be great. <laughs> So one thing that was interesting about Michelle was that she, you know, was really excited by these epic stories. She'd read pretty much all of the climbing literature you could get your hands on. And she like watched all of like the epic TV, like climbing series and all of like the alpinist films and was very excited by, you know, the, the highs that climbing can bring you. And, and that's a big part of what you know drew me to Herbs because I had that same attitude. Um, but the cost of those risks actually, you know, the ball in the roulette landing on green or whatever, you know, of, of that happening um, is, is very real and, um, and it's downplayed or not talked about that much. 
or it is talked about, but like in hushed tones and oftentimes in a way that distances you from what happened. And everybody has this like belief that you kind of need to be out there, that it's not going to be you. And, you know, you get really excited by these epic stories. Um, you know, they're riveting, you read about them, but in the end, everybody was okay. And I think that the risk involved in technical alpine climbing is understated and underplayed. Um, if you make a career out of it and you really go into it, you know, you're, you're like wingsuiting, you're free soloing in terms of how much risk you're taking. And um, I can point out how I'm a hypocrite because I've also done all these risky things. And, and to me, I, the best thing I could liken it to is a really strong drug where you get a huge payoff but there is a lot of risk. And, and yet it's way more glamorous than the idea of doing heroin or whatever, because it's real, it's there. It's something that you can see and touch and experience. Um, and there's all these things that inspire us to do it. Media, books, art of various kinds. And, and then, you know, these dreams that you have of being there and doing it and then having those moments of like, whoa, here I am, I'm doing it. I feel like, especially if you're a person that, you know, has ever struggled with confidence, it certainly brings that in spades because you freaking did it. And then also there's this small cohort of people that get it, that understand what it's like. And that feels amazing because you can build these really close relationships with people since you know that you've shared these experiences and can grow you as a person. All these like positive things, but it can also, you know, it can fucking kill you. Oftentimes before, something bad happens in the mountains. Contrary to what most people might might say, there actually oftentimes isn't a warning before something horrible happens. And so it's just like, I mean, there's certainly warning signs that you can pick up on after having seen it go down that you can, you should uh, apply to the next time you go out. But oftentimes when something happens to people, they, they really didn't expect it because they were really careful and they did their absolute best to do it safely. And so don't get caught up with sending and summiting and looking cool to other climbers and being respected by them because that is a trap and you really need to take this style of climbing or, and also other styles of adventure and whatnot uh, with very serious respect. Um, yeah, it's, it sounds kind of old and crusty to say that because like... <laughs> Because it does sound like I'm saying, don't, don't, don't do any of these things. Mark Twight talks about being in the valley and being up there and how climbers always want to be up on the wall and how eventually you have to return back to the valley. And I think everybody um, needs to take that to heart, I suppose, is that you really, you can't always be after, you can't always be on the top of your game. And, and I actually feel that a lot sometimes whenever I'm in between these like big things that I do and that I come back and it's like, um, I come back to all the things I would have lost and I feel like I want to quit, like I don't want to do this anymore, which is a surprising feeling because I've always felt that I'll never quit and that I'll always do it. And yet, whenever you're up there, all of that goes away and that's part of what makes it so addicting is that whenever you're down on the ground or in your bed staring at the ceiling, you think about everything that could have went wrong but didn't. Uh, but when you're out there enjoying a really good day, it's the opposite, you feel these fantastic feelings of accomplishment, of success, of beauty, of something that's rare and inordinary, and that you would only get a handful of opportunities in your life to experience, and then this like want to drink more of it. And then, and then you go back down to the valley and, and it doesn't feel that way anymore. So I think it'll get harder because um, 
one thing that's great about coming back from a big adventure is you appreciate everything that you left behind so much more like simple things like just my cat hanging out with me or a nice meal or a nice sunset the present moment becomes so much more valuable because the ordinary is no longer boring or like not enough it, it it's the opposite it's everything and you feel this gratitude for having it and the more of that you build up more of that gratitude you have for your surroundings for the sheer like unlikeliness of being alive and getting to experience these amazing things the less you want to risk them and I don't blame people that fall out of the sport, especially as they get families and kids that they love and want to be around for, because at the end of the day, I think that that stuff is just more important. You know, Hanser Gower, who is late, said that the more he climbed, the more he focused on quality over quantity. And I, you know, I don't know what's gonna to happen to me in the future. Uh, I certainly hope that I'll have a long life and I intend to have a long life. I intend to climb until I'm 102. Um, but, you know, um, knowing that that might not be the case. And so it draws a lot of inspiration, I think. Like, I think the worst thing you could do is have all this grief and not find inspiration in it because there is inspiration in there and if you look for it, you'll find it. As humans, we have an innate ability to react to traumatic loss by finding new ways to grow. Thus, resilience is a common type of grieving. Grief and resilience are in fact not mutually exclusive and one can shape the other. And in reflecting on loss, Artem has found meaning in it. And while his dreams and objectives and will to live life to the fullest keep growing bigger, the paradox that the mountains bring him tags along for the ride. Climbing has made leaps and bounds since alpinists once hammered nails into their boots and technical tools have helped revolutionize the sport. But with rising temperatures of climate change, rockfall danger increases daily. And people like Artem understand this unique relationship with danger every time he bucks the odds. Because there are no guarantees of safety in this dangerous game, no consolation for those lost, or the families and loved ones they'll leave behind. And maybe this is just a part of that game. Because as long as mountains exist, there will always be those willing to climb them. So my plan with Michelle, at least with her ashes, is to continue uh, doing things that I knew she wanted to do. I still intend on going to Siberia and going climbing in the Chukotka. Um, I intend on going back to the Alaska Range. I intend on going to Patagonia. I intend on going to the Himalaya. What's important to me is seeing it and being able to take my friend there and experiencing, kind of savoring that love for the beauty that exists in the world. And I don't know why, I, th I just feel like there's this necessity to do it because this is the only opportunity I ever will ever have to do it, ever. And that really gives it a lot of personal value. The things about her that I admired and loved, I want to stay in this world. I want it to be passed on to other people. Like, 
can't die off. And that's what I think culture is. I think that's why it's so important is because when we pass that on to other people, we can preserve the good things in life by remembering people and ideas and what they stood for. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This episode is in memory of Michelle Shui and her climbing partner, Jenny Shedden. The Climbing Grief Fund connects individuals to effective mental health professionals and resources and evolves the conversation around grief and trauma in the climbing, alpinism, and ski mountaineering community. We are proudly presented by Patagonia. Additional support is from Deuter USA, Alay Outdoor, and Otsun. Support companies who support this podcast because we couldn't do it without them. If you liked what you heard, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or give us a like. Like all good things, you can find us on the internet. Until next time. Hey, did you know that you can be a supporter of this show for less than $5 a month? We're on Patreon at patreon.com slash for the love of climbing. Here's the skinny. We can always use help keeping this podcast going. A small monthly donation helps to cover the cost of time, studio rental, travel, equipment, editing, and writing. A lot of work goes into making this show happen. We aren't exactly NPR, and we don't have a huge production team or budget. And your generous support allows us to continue telling these stories. We want to keep this going for years to come. Find us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash for the love of climbing to support this podcast.